Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, a journey to quantify crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Remember that you can always catch this podcast and other deep explorations of blockchain trends on Cointelegraph magazine at www.cointelegraph.com slash magazine. And a very quick disclaimer before we begin, nothing we say here is an investment advice and you can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. And with that said, I am very excited to be joined by Phil Bonello, who is the Director of Research at Grayscale. Phil, it's so great to have you on. Thanks a lot, Joshua. It's uh, great to be on. And so, you know, the way we like to start every episode is by asking, you know, your origin story, right? You know, what was, you know, your pre-crypto life like, if you can even remember back to that? And you know, how did you end up, you know, finding yourself eventually falling down the rabbit hole? Yeah. Uh, so I studied industrial engineering at the University of Michigan. Um, from there, I, I went to IBM, kind of did strat strategy consulting in the tech space, especially for... Uh, industrial, like Internet of Things. So I was interested in predictive maintenance systems. Um, so like basically predicting when uh, large industrial systems were or, uh, machines were going to go down. Um, and so I started to look for new jobs like after IBM and somehow like on some message board, I saw something about Ethereum. I was like, oh, my God, like this is how autonomous communication between machines is going to happen in the future. And like my mind just kind of started spinning and I just like kind of couldn't forget about it. You know, had, I, you, had you heard about Bitcoin before then? I'd heard about Bitcoin, but that wasn't, I like didn't really think much of it until I saw Ethereum. So, you know, Ethereum was really my entry point. And so, you know, why did you decide, you know, to actually go full time into crypto? What was like, I mean, was it just like you saw this thing about Ethereum and you're like, I need to tap in full time and, and why the research analyst angle? I mean, why was that the, the first you know direction that you kind of went? Yeah, so, you know, I went through kind of 2016, 2017, and things just got so crazy. Um, I was trying to make sense of what was going on. Like, what was the value of Bitcoin versus the value of Ethereum versus the value of all of these ICOs? And so I was really approaching everything from the perspective of how do you value this stuff? Um, and I think like the analyst mindset just kind of suited me. Like I was just asking, asking why and trying to dig in. And so I decided in 2018 that I just wanted to go full time. I felt like that was the only way that I could really answer some of these questions and dig in and, uh, you know, approach things from first principles, I guess. And so that's what I did. I just, you know, I left my full time job in uh, 2018 and just spent the next pretty much like six to eight months doing a lot of reading and writing. Um, I wrote a couple papers on valuation. So like a valuation taxonomy for all these different, all the different ways that you can value different cryptos at the time. I wrote like a governance, uh, a paper on trying to value governance. Um, the only governance token that I, I think I knew at the time was ZRX and they had just come out with that proposal. So yeah, it was just, you know, it was, it was just an exploration into why these things were valuable. Um, and it was really interesting. And, and, so, and so your theses from there in terms of valuation, I mean, what were your main theses and how, how has it actually played out in, in, in reality? I mean, what's, what do you think you're right about? And is there anything that you, you know, were just totally missed the boat on? Yeah, I think, well, one of the things I was right about was the value of like productive assets. Uh, so the big, the big thing is that I, I categorize things into like non-productive world and productive. 
And so I think in like the non-productive world, you basically have like NFTs or like artwork and like Bitcoin and money, right? And then in the productive world, you have cash flow generating assets, which we've really started to see a lot more of in the last year. And I, I think what I was wrong about it is at the time I was approaching things from like, everything has to follow fundamental value, right? Like, and just, just uh, basing too much of my thinking on fundamental value alone. And I think fundamental value is important, but it's, it's part of a story, right? And uh, fundamental value is just a very convincing part of the story that a lot of people converge upon. So yeah, I, I think I started to learn that throughout the cycles um, that you can't just fall back on quote unquote fundamental value or like, you know, your cash flow analysis. But um, it's been really exciting to see in the last couple of years, the transition to like kind of cash flow generating assets. Um, and yeah. so what, when, when you say story, right, what do you mean by that? Like, what is the full story around an asset, right? You know, how, how do you see these assets accruing value? Yeah, I mean, the story is so broad, right? It's just, uh, it's, it's the people who, the, who are part of a community. It is all the different metrics. It is the, it's the cash flows associated with them. It's the way that they're traded. It's the volume. Um, all of that comes together to tell this, to tell, tell this story about an asset, which um, then ends up being reflected in the price of that asset, right? And so, um, you know, I feel like this is sort of like late stage bull market commentary to say like, oh yeah, it's all about the story. But, but I, I truly believe that. And, and that's not to say that fundamentals don't matter. Fundamentals matter, but they're part of the story in my mind. And yeah, I'm I'm excited to uh, to dive into that in a little a little bit. And so, you know, let's let's take one one step back first, and then you know we'll take two steps forward again. But you know, so you know, you spent over a year at uh, at Ikigai, uh, which is a crypto hedge fund based in Los Angeles, uh, as one of the first employees and as head of research. And can you tell us what it's like, you know, to to I mean, I guess broadly be part of a, a hedge fund that's just getting started, but also being part of a hedge fund in a bear market, right? And 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 in a market where, you know, now we hear about crypto funds. I mean, you're at Grayscale, Grayscale's got 40 billion or whatever ridiculous amount in AUM, right? You know, I'm sure at Ikigai, you guys were nowhere near that, right? And I mean, for crypto funds back when you guys were getting started, raising $5 million was hard, right? I mean, now people are raising 500, but even getting to five or $10 million is a challenge. And so I'm curious to hear like, what that was like, you know, what the process was like, were you doing research internally for the company? Was it externally for prospective investors? Like, you know, just kind of hearing your, your, your journey there. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a, it was kind of a wild journey. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was really challenging. I learned a lot about what's important in the formation and the fundraising, um, in hedge funds, especially in crypto and like what's important to get them off the ground and how to, how to really sell the product. Right. Um, we really, we really started to get moving on building the hedge fund in July and August of 2018. And then in November, uh, you might remember the market crashed from like Bitcoin crashed from like 6,000 to 3,000. Um, and then we launched the fund in December. So, so it was like a really, really difficult time to be launching a fund, um, because investors were just, you know, they're like, Oh, I, I thought that Bitcoin was dead. It seems like it's dead. Like, I think it's going to maybe go down to, you know, a thousand, maybe 500. So there was a, it was a lot of just trying to find opportunities, trying to stay alive, trying to squeak out any alpha that you could find out there. 
And then on the fundraising side, that was definitely a big challenge. So like being able to tell a really convincing story about the, about the product, about the investment product that you're building um, and, you know, doing a lot of digging through different metrics and where you can actually kind of understand how the cycle is happening. And I think through that process, I gained a really uh, great appreciation of over a few things. Like one of the things was this, this, using on-chain metrics and like kind of macro indicators sort of to to understand what part of the cycle that you may, might be in. And then from that point of view, you can then dig into like more micro factors so that you're not spinning your wheels on micro on micro analysis when really you're going to be fighting against the macro trend the whole time. Yeah, so, so really interesting, uh, really difficult. Um, <laughs> you know, we I, I just talked about uh, you know, the cash flow generating assets and like going through all those assets. I went through like the top 250 assets by market cap, um, put together a whole investment framework. Uh, you know, we probably have like 15 different factors that I, that I scored to kind of build out this like quantitative model, uh, so to speak. But so many of these assets at the time had no user traction um they barely had a product and even if they did have a product uh the asset in many cases wasn't tied to the actual use of the product right 100 percent. Uh, yeah so interesting time yeah i mean I'm, I'm i'm you know i'm curious out of the 250 i mean you know how many are actually in the top 100 even or the top 250 still right and you know how many of those projects have users today right and i'm sure the number is very very low yeah, it's definitely low, um, and for good reason. I'm really glad to see that there's been there's been churn. And so, you know, the next step on your journey, at where you currently are, is, is Grayscale. And so, I'm curious to know, you know, I mean, you know, obviously there's 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 clear reasons why you'd want to join Grayscale, right? It's you know, but I'll let you I'll let you answer that question, right? What 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 drove you to Grayscale, um, and, and what what is what is your job now as as the director of research uh, at Grayscale? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, what is Grayscale for anyone listening who you know, may or may not know? Sure. That, yeah, that's a, that's a good place to start, too. Um, yeah, so Grayscale is a, a digital asset manager. We uh, currently have 14 uh, products, 13 of which are passive single asset vehicles. Uh, so, uh, And then one of which is an index product, market cap weighted index. Of, I think right now it's top five uh, by market cap. Grayscale really tries to be the bridge between kind of the traditional world and the digital currency world. Um, we, we package all of these products as traditional securities. Um, so that just makes it easy for investors to invest in crypto. So then like to hop to why I was really interested in joining Grayscale, I really felt after my time at Ikigai and looking through all these assets um, that the next leg in the crypto's journey was institutional adoption and institutional adoption specifically with respect to Bitcoin. Um, we frequently would say the world is ready for Bitcoin and Bitcoin is ready for the world. I looked at all these scaling problems um, and all of these technical issues on other chains and with different products. I was just like, I'm not sure when these are gonna get solved. Like the Oracle problem was a big one that I just felt was really, really difficult. And so I, you know, I was really focused on Bitcoin at the time and really thought that institutions were going to adopt it. So I wanted to be part of that adoption. I wanted to help educate institutional clients on what Bitcoin and digital assets really are. 
And so can you kind of give us a little bit of a background on, you know, hey, how Grayscale got started and, you know, where the firm is today and, you know, what the future looks like, you know, for the company? Yeah, so I, I don't want to, you know, speak too much for like Barry, but, you know, Barry had started second market. It was kind of tangential to like where crypto is today and that you could sell shares and pri- private shares in startups, you know, sec- second market, it kind of makes sense. And then Barry's, I think, always had this vision of building a new set of financial services for this uh, new financial system, right? Uh, and so like we have this new asset class, you need uh, a prime broker, you needed an asset manager, you need new exchanges. Um, and you can kind of see that in the DCG portfolio, right? So like there's Genesis as the prime broker, there's Grayscale as the asset manager, there's Foundry as the primary financier for uh, kind of mining businesses, uh, investment in Luno as, as uh, like the biggest non one of the biggest non-US exchanges, um, and then Coindesk, right? So. So I think his vision is really, and it still holds true today, is building this whole uh, this whole system of financial services for this new asset class. Um, as far as as far as like where Grayscale is going today, like we really view ourselves as you know the, one of the premier asset managers in the space, and want to position ourselves like kind of according to the traditional world. So like you might think of something like a a Vanguard or a BlackRock, and you know I think that's really kind of what we're modeling our business as. And so tr- continue to bring innovative products to the market that institutional investors and really the masses are demanding, but that cur- they currently can't have access to or um, maybe don't want to have access to like in the underlying form. Um, it's still a, kind of clunky, a little scary to just hold kind of spot underlying of these assets. And so, you know, at this point, you know, the products are all passive management. Uh, do you see demand for actively managed products? I mean, you know, a la maybe Kathy Wood and ARK Invest. Uh, is that thing that you're seeing, you know, and, and funny enough, you know, ARK Invest was, you know, the first institution to ever hold uh, GBTC, uh, which is credit to Chris Berniski back in, I think, 2016 <laughs> or 17. And so, yeah. you know, are you seeing demand for, you know, active managed products? And, and do you think if, if you are those would behave similarly, you know, to the current products you have, you know, being OTC? Yeah, so I, I think there is demand for, you know, potentially active products for uh, maybe just uh, more tailored products, so different sort of indices and, and things of that sort. Um, what's, what's interesting is, you know, the crypto, sec- the crypto industry as a whole has matured so much that there actually are sectors at this point. Um, that wasn't the case a few years ago. You really couldn't do uh, sector analysis. Um, so I, I think I think uh, Grayscale as a whole wants to continue to bring uh, products to market that make it simple for for the common investor to to get exposure to crypto. And are you seeing? Um, you know, this is something I'm always curious about, and I've actually had a bunch of conversations recently on the RIA side. Um, are you guys starting to see an uptick in interest from, you know, investment advisors as well? Uh, and I'm kind of, I guess, curious, you know, broadly speaking, you know, where the demand comes, you know, both in the private placement side on Grayscale and how that's changed over time, but also, you know, on terms of the, you know, now that, you know, once the private placement is done, it becomes traded six or 12 months later, you know, where that demand is coming if investment advisors are fitting into that. Yeah, I think we're seeing a huge uptick in the uh, RIA uh, side of things. 
and I, I think that's just because of the bull market, right? Like uh, clients are demanding uh, <laughs> that their advisors kind of get them into into these products. From from like what type of clients that have been coming to us in the past year, it's it's been ninety percent institutional type clients, uh, mostly Bitcoin. Like I think it's been around ninety percent uh, inflow uh, for Bitcoin relative to other products. I think that's largely been driven by kind of the monetary inflation narrative uh, that like really resonated with a lot of institutions. We are certainly starting to see or like have seen an uptick in Ethereum and some of the other products on market cap. But just from like a big money perspective, like people are still just getting familiar with Bitcoin, right? So like I think we're starting to see maybe some interest in like DeFi because it, it's sort of familiar. Those, those products are sort of familiar. Uh, they have cash flows associated with them. And, uh, and so, yeah, like people are starting to poke around in, in the DeFi space, but it's, it's been very, very heavy on Bitcoin. And are the types of institutions that are working with you, have those changed significantly over the last year or so? You know, I, I presume when, when, you know, GBTC was first released, you know, you're talking high net worth and maybe family offices, right? It would be my presumption, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. You know, has the type of institution changed from, you know, a family office, let's say an endowment or a pension? I mean, are the types of clientele different? Yeah, definitely. And yeah, it's it's largely been family offices and hedge funds, uh, you know, for a lot of the inflows. Um, but we have seen uh, some interest from like more of those endowment types, like like larger asset managers that are traditionally much more conservative. Can you kind of talk about, and I know, you know, you may not want to hit on this, you know, in depth, but the ETF, right. And, and, you know, the seemingly endless process. And, and I believe, you know, Barry has come out and said that Grayscale will, you know, eventually, you know, hopefully get an ETF. You know, I'm curious to your thoughts as to, you know, maybe not, you know, you don't need to tell us what's going on behind the scenes or anything like that, but do you think, you know, the market is closer to an ETF than it's ever been. Do you think there's work that's still needed? Uh, and, and what do you think regulators remain concerned about, you know, that, that potentially is keeping them from approving an ETF? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so there's, there's certainly demand for an ETF. I mean, we, we see that in uh, the Grayscale products, uh, certainly. We've been, you know, really looking towards regulators to see, like, how things have been progressing and, communicating with them constantly, right? Um, and like you mentioned, uh, I think it was last week or the week before, uh, Grayscale released a comment saying that we intend to uh, transition GBTC into an ETF when the time is right. Um, I think one of the, the biggest sticking points for regulators has been this idea of market manipulation. One of the things that I, I, I view as potentially positive is is just the increase in CME volume. So, you know, we'll see if that, if that makes a difference. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think it's just an ongoing process. I, I do probably think we're closer than we ever have been just because the crypto space is more mature than it ever has been. But yeah, it's an ongoing process. Gensler was, uh, I think, just a, admitted today. Um, so yeah. The fun it, begins. It, the fun begins. <laughs> And, and so let's kind of get, let's dive into research and, and, and fundamentals. And so I'm curious, you know, obviously you didn't start with the traditional financial background, but I'm, I'm sure a lot of folks at, at Grayscale have, and, you know, Barry obviously did. And so, you know, I'm curious what research techniques 
have you kind of adopted from traditional financial markets? And, and what do you think is kind of more crypto native or had to be adapted for the crypto market? Yeah, so I, I think I think the the biggest one is like cash flows, right? Like being able to model stuff like using a discounted cash flow model. Uh, and for a long time, you really couldn't do that. So like even though I didn't come from like a traditional uh, finance background, I actually did take that approach when I uh, started doing full time research, right? I was really came from like, okay, how can I model this from a fundamental perspective? How can I, even if even if the cash cash flows weren't direct, like can I model indirect cash flows or some uh, some sort of value, right? Uh, like t- for a governance token, for example, um, like how much does that governance token actually uh, control? How much value does it control? But I th- I think my, during like my time at Ikigai, things changed a lot, um, and like it. Uh, the way that I viewed the space really evolved. Um, one of the things that I found that I really connected with, like with Travis on, is this idea of like, you can't fall in love with any of this stuff, right? Um, and I think I heard him on the Crypto Bobby podcast, like back in 2018, and he's like, you know, you can't, you can't fall in love with any of this shit, Bobby. And, and that, really, that really resonated with me um, because because like you, you want to be cognizant of the crowd and like you have to observe the crowd, but you, you don't want to you know, become part of the crowd. You may want to invest in the crowd, but you don't want to get sucked in because like once you like kind of fall in love with the project, you then can become just very, very biased and end up, you know, cer- certainly getting hurt like in, in a bear market. Right. And I think we saw a lot of that in 2018, 2019, you know, in building out the investment framework, I was looking at all sorts of metrics, like whether they were uh, more like from a like market perspective, like volume and price and time or um, more like on chain metrics. So I'm a big fan of using on chain metrics for, like I said, like more macro indicators. So uh, trying to get an understanding of where supply or like in what assets supply might be constrained. And then just trying to understand if demand is, you know, coming from like more of a fundamental and, and perspective. And by supply constraints, do you mean like supply off exchange? Like what are the metrics you actually like looking into? Yeah. So one of the metrics that I use frequently is uh, looking at the age of coins. So like for Bitcoin, for example, like I will take, um, I created this metric called like the um, holder speculator index. And so holders are basically uh, the, the supply of coins that have not moved for one to three years, right? So you're you're filtering out any coins that you know probably were lost, never never to be touched again. But you're also like you're you're filtering out those like short term coins, right? Anything less than a year, and so you want to you want to see that steadily increasing. And then um, and then I have the the speculators really labeled as like ninety day short term active supply, right? And so like they tend to be very uh, interrelated and cyclical, Um, but like from a macro standpoint, you really want to see the speculators go away. The short term market participants are all gone. Uh, They really don't care to play in the Bitcoin market anymore. And the holders have that one to three year tier is so powerful because if we just refer back to the the um, like the market eight months ago, you can look at that holder base and you're like, okay. Those, those one to three year holders have gone through crazy volatility, right? They've seen uh, 3,000, like 3,000, and then they've seen 14,000, and then they saw 3,000 again, and they, they haven't sold. 
So like you've got to assume that they're going to at least hold back until it's 14,000, right? Um, so it, it just like, it gives you a, a level of comfort that the market participants um, currently present are really there for long-term price appreciation. Um, so that, that's one that I- How are you seeing that metric take shape now uh, in the market? Yeah, so we're, we're starting to see some movement from like the long-term uh, holding tier. And we're definitely starting to see an uptick in kind of the short-term speculative tier. I think one... And one what's cat- the time frame for that? Like, is this over the last few weeks? Is this over the last few months? Has that changed since the beginning of the year? Yeah, it's been mostly in like the last three months. There's been a shift a little bit. Um, so we're not... There aren't just like crazy amount of speculators in the market yet. Um, but we're starting to see that trend shift a little bit. And, and how are you seeing that for altcoins? Are you are you seeing it be more speculative? Because I mean, if we look at the market, I mean, alts have absolutely destroyed this, you know, you know, over the last six months, right? I mean, I, I think, you know, what I what I what I've seen constantly play out, and I'm curious if you've seen the same thing. Is you know, basically at this market, Bitcoin moves up by like fifteen percent, it stops moving, and then altcoins go up by one hundred fifty percent, right? And then when when Bitcoin's crashing, you want to be the furthest away from an altcoin historically, but you know, it, it seems like that that's that, that keeps happening, right? I mean, if we look at exchange tokens, I, I think I look today, the average exchange token is up like 1,250% year to date, which is just, it's obscene. Like it's completely yeah. ridiculous, right? I mean, BNB is up from like 20 to like $600, right? And so I'm curious if you're seeing the same thing in alts, if you think this is long-term holding or if you think it's more speculative behavior. Yeah, you know, from a macro perspective, it's a little bit, it, it's more difficult to do on the altcoins, right? Because these are, I'm looking at, like multi-year holding periods and right. some of these some alts, of stuff, you know, popped up last week. So yeah. And, and some of these, yeah, some of these uh, coins are just, they're not that old. So you can't see those historical like mm-hmm. holding patterns. Um, yeah. But I mean, I, I think, yeah, I think some of the activity right now is definitely on the speculative side, but you know, that can run for a long time as, as we know. And, and so I'm curious what other on-chain metrics, uh, you know, you're really interested in, you know, both for Bitcoin, but also, you know, we can keep this to the grayscale assets if you want, like, you know, Ethereum and Ethereum Classic and Litecoin and Livepeer and Horizon and all, you know, all these other assets that Grayscale, you know, makes available. I'm curious as to what metrics you'd like to look at there when you're, you know, potentially talking to investors about, you know, looking at these assets and valuing them. Yeah, for sure. So... I published this piece called like valuing Ethereum maybe two months ago or something. And it, it walked through uh, a number of different metrics for Ethereum. One that I think is like fairly convincing is uh, like a price to sales ratio, right? Like, or just looking at the uh, amount of revenue that's generated on Ethereum relative to its price at any given time. And um, I think that's convincing because at the end of the day, Ether is used to pay for all of these transaction fees. Right, and so if, if there's a huge if there's a huge amount of transaction fees on uh, the Ethereum network, then you might assume that there's going to be a large amount of demand for Ether as underlying asset. Um, and so if we look at like kind of the historical trends, um, that's still at a very low level, um, or le- at least last I checked, um, because Ether really hadn't made its move yet, and the fees have just been insane on Ethereum. Um, so, like, I, I will say, though, that that's like a highly reflexive metric and fees, you know, sometimes follow price. 
Um, and a lot of the altcoin movement, I think, has really been driving some of the fees on Ethereum, right? So, so like if, if the market yeah, crashes, speculators on Uniswap and, and, and you know, yeah, like, like so it's, it's all it's, yeah, it's all inherently financial. So like right. when like you look at like total value locked and great, like total value locked is one thing, but it's made a lot of that value locked is made out of highly volatile assets, and so so you can derive a cash flow from the from TVL, but like that cash flow. <laughs> That cash flow might evaporate when TVL evaporates because the underlying asset has just gone down eighty percent. Um, and so, yeah. and so, how do you, you know, thinking of price to sales? I mean, how, what do you think of the new, you know, the 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 new uh, Ethereum improvement proposal? Uh, you know, which is out, which will reduce fees and also, you know, moving to proof of stake and all these, you know, different things that Ethereum is working on. You know, because you know, it's it's clear that if Ethereum wants to reduce fees, they they can if miners and and the like agree to it. Um, yeah. So I'm curious to how that could impact the value of Ethereum. Yeah, no, I you know I really like uh, like that triple point uh, thesis, uh, which which basically states that like Ethereum right now is kind of this uh, commodity. It's kind of a money commodity sort of asset. Um, which makes a lot of sense to me. It's, it's used to pay for fees, but the fees aren't burned. But then with EIP 1559, it becomes this consumable commodity, right? Like you pay, you pay for, um, pay for a transaction, some amount of ether gets burned and that eventually reduces the total amount of ether in, in circulation. And then under, under a proof of stake type paradigm, it then becomes this like cash flow generating asset while also having this deflationary mechanism. So it's like, it's, it's really interesting, right? Um, I, I, I think, I think it's, uh, I think generally it's good for the transformation of ether, but that also scares uh, investors. Like it's gonna scare institutional investors. When I talk to an investor and they're like, you know, what should I invest in like Bitcoin or Ethereum? And like, they're like, I really wanna hold this for, you know, 10 to 20 years. And I'm like, well, you know what? Bitcoin is like pretty ossified at this point. Like it's hardened. It's uh, it it it's not going to change that much just because like what the community is like. Uh, you can feel pretty comfortable that the Bitcoin that you have in ten to twenty years is going to be the Bitcoin that you bought today. Whereas you know Ethereum, like you really don't know what's going to happen in the next five to ten years. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> Ethereum has been the second asset by market cap effectively since launch, right? And and it's you know, and, and, you know, right behind Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is just like, you know, there's still questions with Ethereum, right? And I'd love to dive into, you know, the, the Solana, the Avalanche, the, you know, all these new, I mean, even, even some of these newer blockchains, like near protocol and, you know, some that haven't even launched yet, right? Like, I, I'd love to dive into that, but it's, it's, it's kind of crazy that like Ethereum does have the most devs. It has all this stuff going on, but it just, it doesn't feel as safe as Bitcoin and it can change so much. So, I mean, I don't know if you yeah. if you share that share that kind of point of view, but no, hundred percent, I share that. It's uh, you know, Bitcoin. Bitcoin has the has the brand brand. It's been along. It's been around the longest, um, and just the core values of the community are really such that like it's not going to change too much, right? Um, yeah. So so when you get, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, right? You know. When I talk to family offices and endowments and, you know, folks that are and even even retail, right, or high net worth uh, that that aren't really exposed to crypto, 
they say, what about the other Bitcoins, right? And like, it's very easy to, to give the value proposition of Bitcoin, right? It's very easy to explain. It's the store of value macro asset. Like we finally landed on, like we went in so many circles, right? First, it was Roger Ver who was running around, you know, trying to convince everybody to accept Bitcoin as, as cash. And, you know, the narratives changed over time, but we've landed on the store of value thing. And I don't think anybody in the space will really disagree with it. Um, but with, with other assets, it's like, what is the, what is the value, right? And, and why should you hold it? And why is it different than something else? And so I'm curious to when, you know, I'm sure you get similar questions that maybe not exactly the same, how you, how you respond uh, to an investor that's, that's potentially interested in these other assets, but doesn't really understand them. Other assets, meaning like, anything the forks, the forks, okay, okay. I, I was wondering if you, you, you were, you know, talking specifically like BSV and stuff like that. No, 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 um, no. no. Like, like we, we don't talk about BSV on the podcast. Don't worry. <laughs> That's good to know. Um, yeah, no, it's, I think, I think as long as there's a defined use case, then you can really, you can really speak to something um, like pretty easily. Like, right. So, so like, for example, we just launched uh, products for uh, bat, which has a brave, you know, brave browser is, is, Kind of the company behind bat they have 25 million uh monthly active users like real traction there they're probably going to be building out a uh you know dex that integrates in, or like a deck aggregator right into the browser um like there's live peer which is a video transcoding service if you want to really build a decentralized video application then you're going to need you know that full stack and there's no other service to do that in a decentralized way um you know, same with Chainlink. Like, I, I don't want to just talk the book here, but like, you know, it's an mm -hmm. Oracle service. That's the most adopted um, Oracle, like kind of in DeFi. And so, so I think like, as long as there's a defined use case for some of these alternative assets, uh, you know, I think it's pretty, pretty self-explanatory. Like it is a little bit more challenging with things that are like very similar to Bitcoin, right? Um, because like, yeah, like in, uh, let's take Litecoin, for example. And, and, you know, you know, Grayscale has a Litecoin trust. So I'm curious. You know, as to as to you know the the research that you're putting out there around Litecoin and and why one would want to take a position over Bitcoin. Yeah, you know, I I think that Litecoin has some uh, defining characteristics. Like one of the things is that it that has historically kind of been a test net for um, for Bitcoin. If I'm not mistaken, I think Litecoin is experimenting with Mimblewimble uh, pretty soon. So like that. Yeah, there are different things there, and 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 community is obviously a big part of all these all these assets. And so, if one really believes in the Litecoin community, then it may be a a better uh, a better asset to own than Bitcoin. Um, obviously, the total market capitalization of Litecoin is a fraction of Bitcoin's as well. And so, like, there's obviously a trade there. Um, you know. All from an expected value perspective. Like if if you if you place uh, Litecoin at a ten percent chance of overcoming Bitcoin, but it's only valued at two percent, then there might be a, a trade there to close that gap. And so I'm curious as to I think I mean you just alluded to it is this idea of relative valuation, right? X is worth something, so Y should be worth something else, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious <laughs> is that is that something that just matters in bull markets? Does that matter in bear markets too? Um, I mean, I'm seeing that a lot with our clients talking to funds. I mean, that seems to be a, a trade that everyone's making. It's like, okay, this creator coin just pumped. This one hasn't pumped yet. So I'm curious if you're like seeing, you know, the, the, the same kind of thing. And if, you know, if 
that is going to end up hurting people once this market, it will correct at some point, right? I mean, I think we all know that. So, you know, I, whenever it will, you know, is, is up for debate. But like, if relative valuation is dangerous in, 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 in bull markets, or if it's dangerous in bear markets? I think it's just one, it's one part of the story, you know, like I was talking about earlier. Um, but that's for relative value to work, other people have to believe in relative value, right? And so, and like every other people have to like see that trade there and actually be part of the the closing of that gap. Uh, so it's just it's something that I don't think I don't think with any of these things you can look at them uh, in isolation and depend on them like completely, right? Like uh, like strong opinions loosely held in, in this market for sure. And so you might see a great relative value trade. Uh, but if, if the thesis doesn't it doesn't work out, then you just have to cut it. Um, so, like, I, I definitely see some value in it, and it can work. Um, but just something to be cautious of. And so, you know, we've obviously, you know, as I mentioned, exchange tokens are up twelve hundred fifty percent this year, right? Yeah. I mean, Bitcoin is at sixty two thousand sixty one. Who knows? You know, I don't know. It changes every five seconds. But do you, do you think the market is a little too hot? Did this happen too fast? And you know, are we are we straying away from reality um, with large cap, mid cap, small cap tokens, uh, or do you think this is just the beginning of this next cycle? I mean, earlier you actually said late stage bull market, so you kind of, you know, I don't know if you threw that out on purpose or not, but but curious to hear your thoughts. Um, you know, I it's really hard in in crypto to like call tops. Uh, we don't generally speak to like price predictions um, anyway, but I would say this, like late in a bull market, even if things are overheated and the community is euphoric, prices can run another 500%. And the level that you're currently at could be the, the low of the next bear market, right? You just, it's, it's so hard to, it's so hard to call that. Um, and that, that's why I really like to look at on-chain metrics, just to understand kind of the general the general movement of these assets. Um, I I was going to say earlier, you know, even with the holder speculator index shifting a little bit, one of the things that's uh, one of the caveats there is that a lot of money has been going from um, I, I would say a lot of that like uh, holder base has been uh, going to new holder types, right? Whether it's like the Grayscale uh, Bitcoin product or whether it's uh, like into, you know, right into Coinbase, right from an institutional player. And these, a lot of these institutions really aren't looking for like a six month holding period. Um, it's a much longer position for them and it's a very small uh, percentage of their portfolio. And so there's a, potential that, you know, when even though we see that holder base dropping a bit, it might be going from one holder to like kind of a new type of holder. And so speaking of Coinbase, you know, Coinbase had its IPO today, and I'm curious to get your initial thoughts. But one thing that actually came to me earlier today, and you know, I, I wanted to ask you is, you know, who is the buyer, do you think of, of the Coinbase IPO? Do you think it's people in crypto or do you think it's it's new folks? And and does that mean that those that are selling their Coinbase shares, you know, in my head, I'm like, are these guys just going to ape into DeFi? 
right? Like, yeah. the, I mean, or, like I think something like eighteen thousand or nineteen or eighteen hundred employees got you know, you know, a couple hundred shares, you know, which is uh, you know, I got twenty five thousand dollars at the two hundred fifty, um, you know, at the two hundred fifty dollar price, which is now even more. So I'm curious as to what impact you think that's going to have on the market broadly. Yeah, I think it it just serves as a um, a, a pricing benchmark for a lot of things in crypto. Um, you know, we, we of course saw like a lot of the exchange tokens being repriced, uh, in real time to like when, when Coinbase is really on its run earlier today. And I think it went from, it went from the 250 like uh, pre-market price to then I think it was around, um, 380, like when it, when it, it went actually, all the way up to 400 at some point or very close yeah, 380 when it started trading and then at four, like 50 when at its peak and then right back down to like 330 or something. We saw a lot of those exchange tokens really moving in lockstep. Um, I don't think that the buyers of of uh, Coinbase are crypto people uh, because they already feel comfortable, you know, buying that like coins. And um, I think a lot of people were really looking at coins as kind of relative value trades to Coinbase. Um, I think it's more institutional folks who have had trouble making allocations to Bitcoin. And crypto, you know, more broadly, like the people who have been, you know, maybe buying like a Grayscale product or have been buying uh, like something like MicroStrategy, um, you know, kind of going into uh, Coinbase. And and then that that last part, the narrative of people selling selling their their Coinbase shares and then getting into DeFi, I really don't know. I mean, I <laughs> that uh, it sort of seems like a stretch, but it's definitely possible. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, do you, do you think that it, it, this has any impact on a crypto ETF, or do you think it's totally separate? It 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 feels separate to me. Yeah, I, I don't have and, too much to say there, but it it seems it feels like it's it's you know a little bit isolated. And so, you know, my next question is, you know, and we've talked about fundamentals a bit, but you know, I'm curious to you know, hear your definition of token economics and whether or not, you know, you know, we talked about fundamental value, but whether or not you think the market is actually valuing that today. And that's something that matters. Yeah. Token economics for me are, it's like the, you know, how the token is actually structured. Um, and in 2017, 2018, like all of those tokens were what I would classify as like medium of exchange tokens. Right. Uh, they're just they're just being used to pay for the service of the product. Um, you mean I, like I, utility tokens in a way. Utility tokens, yeah, yeah. I don't see like a ton of value in in, in those tokens generally. Um, I don't think like the value of them is tied so much to the, the actual product. Um, so I think of token economics is like you know is there a way to actually fundamentally value something. Um, maybe there's some sort of burn associated with it. Um, maybe there's a lockup. Uh, you know, there's some staking mechanic that's going to act as a supply sink. Uh, I think that definitely does have a very strong effect on how the market prices these assets, and it can, and in some cases, it can really, really constrain supply. And if the demand is there for the token, then just that like offsetting supply is going to uh, result in you know price appreciation. So I, I definitely, I definitely think there's there's value in understanding the token economics. And so, 
two things you brought up. The first was locking and the second was staking and so, uh, lock up, sorry, and the second is staking. And so one thing that I feel like I'm like the only person that cares about anymore is fully diluted value. It mm. seems like that has become totally lost on the market, right? Which is the idea that in some cases, certain assets only have 1% or less than 1% of their supply that's currently liquid or available for trading. I mean, a couple examples of this just off the top of my head is Serum, which is the Dex on Solana, is trading at like a 60 or more 70 or $80 billion fully diluted valuation, which is insane because I've interacted on Solana and I have to imagine I'm one of 10,000 people in the world that's actually interacted on Solana. Like it can't be that many people, right? Yeah. And so, you know... Um, you know, I'm curious at, you know, and another example is Flow, you know, the Dapper Labs token. Another example is Filecoin was trading at like a $250 billion fully diluted valuation. And so does that even matter? Like, it doesn't seem like the market cares. I mean, you know, with Avalanche, there was this thing, they called it the, uh, they called it the bullish unlock. It was bullish somehow that more Avalanche came onto the market. So I'm just curious as to your overall take, both short term and long term. You know, again, you know, if, if you're the only one that cares about fully diluted value, then it's not, then, then fully diluted value isn't a relevant metric for the market, right? <laughs> so you just, care about fully diluted value. Do I? Um, I don't like really care about full, fully diluted value unless it's coming up, like the unlocks are coming up like imminently uh, because I think so much can change uh, in, in what happens like with that, you know, with the rest of that supply. Um, you know, maybe it just continues to get pushed back, maybe it gets burned, um, whatever it may be. And then for as long as something is trading, you're, you're, tr you're trading on this idea that you really have no control over and that the market, like, like you said, the market appears not to care. So, so I think it's probably, you know, worthwhile to, to ignore in, in, in the short term, but like, Again, That's a you hot to, take. I like it. I like it. Yeah, again, you have to be you have to be ready to like reevaluate, you know, your your thesis. But if 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 nobody is actually looking at fully diluted value, and you are, then then you know it's, it's the same thing as the relative value trade. Like it's just not going to work. And uh, no, I think that's important. I mean, it's the same thing, right? People ask why Bitcoin has value, and it's because a lot of people believe it has value, right? And so, yep. you know, same thing. Why did technical and why did technical analysis works? It works as a lot of people think it works, and they do it. So I think that's a good take. Yeah. Um, and so the second part of this is staking and inflation, which is also very similar to this FDV idea. Um, you know, which is the concept of you know when it comes to Bitcoin, we're obsessed with the idea of inflation of the U.S. dollar, right? And Bitcoin is this. <laughs> is this asset that we can hold in this hedging asset against inflation, but we're aping our money into assets that have, you know, staking yields of 30%, you know, they're inflating by 30 or 40%. And somehow when it comes to Bitcoin, we love this store of value narrative. But when we look at these other assets, we're obsessed with the yield. And, and you know, like, what is, what is your take there? I mean, like my take is like, if you're not staking, you're, you're losing because staking is just making sure you're keeping up with inflation. But I'm curious as to your thoughts. Well, yeah, and I think it, it, it depends on that that supply curve, right? Like, I think we saw over the summer some of these DeFi assets had had uh, they had really generous yields, and it was, the yields were denominated in their tokens, and everybody really loved that until they were, you know, staking in and getting uh, getting tokens that were losing value like on a daily basis, right? And so, yeah, so so like. I think you just have to be cognizant of that. Um, 
I, but I do think there are other there are other there are models out there where you know inflation of 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 a certain asset actually is a great bootstrapping mechanism, um, and different locking schemes for those for those stakers make sure that like there's not going to be a huge um, burden on token holders. Um, yeah, but also like if if you're really if you're really bullish on a token, you may not want to be farming to get that token, right? Like you may want to just buy it. Like often, often that is often that's the easier route. And so, you know, in this bull market where every valuation is, is seemingly going up, uh, how do you go about finding this elusive hundred X, this elusive diamond in the rough? And I know that's not what you do in your job at Grayscale, but I'm assuming that's something that you did, you know, during your time at Ikigai and also, Everybody in the crypto market, regardless of whether or not you work at a fund or you work anywhere else, or regardless of whether you're investing, you're always obsessed with this idea of the 100x trade. And it's funny you mentioned Crypto Bobby and uh, the advice Travis got, because I know he got his first 100x, which he posted <laughs> about what I think it was ThorChain yeah. uh, with Rune. And so I'm curious as to how you how you do that in a market where everything is already up by a thousand percent. Yeah, I mean, it's it, I think it's very difficult in the current market regime uh to do that uh unfortunately like it's probably going to come down to like private allocations um but you know in, in more of like a bear market situation really understanding the fundamentals of the token you know from the token economic standpoint from like are there users on chain uh all the way to like more of like the qualitative and like kind of fringe stuff like <laughs> i was tracking you know if, if a certain token uh, was followed by a large investor or something, you know, because then I could maybe front run the investment from that large investor into that token, or um, you know, what what was the like, what was the community like for that certain token in Telegram, right? Like, was it more, was it a lot of pump and dump type of people, or was it um, really more investor, long term oriented people with their development going on? Um, uh, where geographically, where was that token located, right? That might tell me something about the type of investor going in. And uh, I'm what, curious, can you can you expand on that? Yeah, so so you know, like in a, like I think uh, we've historically seen kind of like a, a segmentation between like kind of east and west, and so like there are some of the like Silicon Valley Silicon Valley darlings versus um, kind of like more like uh, I would say like the Asian darlings, and there are certain investor bases who target each one, right? And so sometimes they will pump together. Um, and so, so like from a relative value standpoint, you know, you might look at uh, one like Silicon Valley token and be like, okay, well, this one hasn't pumped yet, but it has the same investors. I actually think this, you know, this might pump. And so like a term we use a lot back, you know, in the EGI days is like uh, pumpamentals. Um, <laughs> just like what, like what were the, you know, qualitative factors that really might feed into how this token will react in the broader market. Yeah. And no, I mean, you're going down the list. I mean, my next question was, how do you do diligence a token? And you've gone through a lot of it. The last piece, you know, that, that, that I'm wondering is how much does it matter, you know, who the team is and do you interact with teams at, at, at Grayscale, you know, on all the products that you're launching and how does that change when you look at, you know, some of these anonymous founder DeFi tokens and, you know, what, I guess, you know, I just, I'll let you run with it. Yeah. And and I'll, I'll I just want to you know be clear like some like the way that I just described understanding a hundred X token is definitely not how I evaluate 
tokens like for uh, Grayscale or how we evaluate <laughs> tokens for Grayscale generally, um, right? Like we're really trying to understand if there's market demand or if we think there will be market demand based on um, the, the founders of the project, the uh, market that that project is in, and if there's really a market need for it. Um, and, and those are like really the big factors, right? So like a lot of our, a lot of the tokens that we have listed are just like at the top of the market cap um, list. And, and that's just, it's, it's simple, right? Like the market has shown us that, that they want these tokens. And then some of the other ones are a little bit more niche. And that's because like we've looked at the market and we're like, okay, you know, this is an interesting market segment. This token or this project actually fulfills that market segment in, in a really strong way. And we want to uh, make our investors aware of that and give them the opportunity to invest. And so what is your favorite piece of research that you've written? Uh, and, you know, we can link it in the description so people can kind of check it out. But Yeah, for, for Grayscale, I've, I've really liked these, the t- these two pieces, uh, valuing Bitcoin and valuing Ethereum, like just because the investors have found them to be really valuable. Um, I think the question that we've gotten so much from investors is just, how do I, well, how do I value Bitcoin? How do I value Ethereum? Like, I, I don't get it. And uh, I think we do a pretty good job breaking it down. Um, you know, just, just the number of metrics that, you, that investors can use to at least feel comfortable when looking at, at uh, that type of valuation. And then one that I uh, wrote before I joined Grayscale is called uh, the Sovereign Individual Investment Thesis. And uh, I wrote that in... 2019, uh, November, like October, November, 2019. And it really talked about, uh, kind of the rise of like, um, the online economy, digital money, um, dissident technology, a lot of things that like we saw, uh, come to life right after COVID. Um, and I think are really accelerating right now. And so I, I really like that book, the sovereign individual, if, uh, if you haven't read it, um, I think it's great. And so what worries you most about crypto? You know, what do you think are the biggest risks? And then what has you most excited? I think the biggest risk um, right now is, is probably just, you know, regulatory risk. Uh, not from like a long-term perspective, uh, but I think that would be a short-term, uh, that would short, in, the, in the short term, it would really uh, be a big burden on the growth of, of uh, crypto, at least in the US, right? I'm extremely excited about crypto right now, I think more than I ever have been, uh, because in 2017, 2018, like that time period, I looked at the market and I wasn't really, I was very excited, but I wasn't 100% sure like how everything was gonna work out. I look at the market right now and, and I, I feel like the cat is really out of the bag as far as we have, we have a, we have DeFi, which has seen like serious adoption. And with respect to DeFi, the biggest issue we have right now is like a bandwidth issue, right? Like it, it's having trouble scaling. And that's an amazing problem to have, right? That, that's like, when you think about the internet, that, that was like the big issue. And it took a little time to scale and to like bring the user experience to the point that I need to get to. But, but that's, that's a huge deal. And then I'm interested in kind of like the web three build out as well. So like DeFi is, is built on Ethereum. It's like this uh, transfer of value. It's, it's the substrate for, for value transfer, right? 
I think we're starting to see the build out of other parts of the stack. And like you could see that with NFTs, huge demand for NFTs, but then people start to question, okay, well, where's my, where's the image actually being stored? And so then like Arweave came out like, okay, this Arweave is this great, you know, tool for permanent storage. And so NFTs should really be stored on Arweave. And I think we're also going to see a paradigm in the next few years of personal data storage, right? So you are taking your data from one application to the next, uh, which is I think really important and really powerful when you think about right now in the current paradigm, where uh, where all the power accrues for, you know, like internet businesses, it's like when they have a lot of data, right? So what happens when you kind of turn that on uh, turn that on its head. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm super excited about where we are in the crypto industry right now. And so the last question, you know, to you as a, uh, you know, as you're a Michigan alum, um, you know, is, is your thought on why, uh, Michigan re-signed John Harbaugh, what the thought process is there and, you know, uh, you know, what is the outlook for next season for Michigan football? You know what? I've, I've like always given up on Michigan football at this point. I, I don't know why they re-signed. I don't know why they re-signed Harbaugh. It, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It seems like they've been getting good recruits and he just hasn't been able to develop them. I've been saying recently, you know what? We're a basketball school. Uh, so that's, that's how we have to rebred. Uh, we had a great run this year. Um, tough, tough loss, but. Yeah, we're a basketball school now. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, where can people find you online? Uh, Twitter. Phil J. Bonello is, is the, probably the easiest place to, to find me. Cool. I'll link that in the uh, description. Thank, thank you, Phil. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Joshua.